the idea is, A, I want to make a successful show, something that I can be really proud of. But B, it's also important for me to be out in the trenches, making a show, committing to a schedule, trying new things, experimenting, learning on the, you know, on the job so that I can then go back and use what I learned from making Follow Friday to help my consulting clients. Podcast Junkies, episode 283. Welcome back. I'm your host, Harry Duran. Newcomers, newcomers, welcome, welcome. Rolling out the welcome mat for you if this is the first time you're listening. This is the one where we search out interesting voices in podcasting and learn about their shows. More importantly, what makes them tick, what inspired them to start to show, and whatever else is on their mind. And in case you missed last week's episode, we had just such a conversation with Rob Joseph, aka Rob J, host of Coffee and Coding. This episode is brought to you by Focusrite and specifically the Scarlet 2i2 sound card, one of my favorite go-to sound cards, something I use for each and every podcast recording. The 3G line is a go-to for all new podcasters. Find out more at podcastjunkies.com forward slash Focusrite and the link will be in the show notes as well. This week I speak to Eric Johnson. He's the host of Follow Friday. It's a podcast about who you should follow online. Every week, Eric talks to creative people about who they follow and why. He's also the founder of Lightning Pod, an agency that helps its clients achieve their podcasting goals. We have a great discussion on the evolution of journalism and Eric's valuable experience at all things digital, which is really helpful for me to learn about. We learn what inspired Eric to launch a podcast focused on interesting people you should follow, and he shares some of the biggest lessons he's learned as a podcaster, his love of movies, and his thoughts on the overwhelming amount of content now being produced and what to do about it. As always, full show notes available at podcastjunkies.com forward slash 283. If you enjoyed this episode or past episodes, leave that reading and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash podcastjunkies. And yes, I'll be sure to read those out on future episodes. If you're following on social, I had a post that picked up a bit of steam on Twitter. And in case you missed it, I pinned it to the podcast underscore junkies Twitter page. Essentially, I was listening to podcasting 2.0 with Dave Jones and Adam Curry. And I was so inspired because they're really at the cutting edge of what's happening with the ability to send micro crypto payments known as Satoshis directly to you as a podcast host. And I was testing out uh, Fountain. Check out fountain.fm. It's a new podcast app with a built-in crypto wallet. And as I was listening, I went over to Fountain and then I typed in a message. I said, I can't think of a more perfect example of value for value than this explanation of the 4.6 million podcasts in a way that makes sense. Keep up the great work, Dave and Adam. Signed, Harry from Podcast Junkies. So I'm looking forward to hearing that in the next episode, but this is what I heard in a previous episode from an earlier donation. Uh, Harry Duran sent us 1,101, uh, excuse me, 1,111 sats. Thank you. Boost! And <laughs> He says, long overdue boost. Yeah. Harry Duran. Booster. Mm-hmm. <laughs> host, Harry Duran, host of the podcast Junkies Podcast. Time for you both to come on the show. Well, I'll be glad to. Okay. Anytime. Harry. Right. Thank you, bud. I've been doing this since 2014. I'll tell you right now, it never gets old to hear your name shouted out on a podcast episode. So I was just so excited and inspired by the experience. I tweeted about it and I put it on all the socials. So check it out, podcast underscore junkies. The long and short of it is that um, we're still in super, super early days. I think I pulled my stats for the boostograms. You can uh, do a little bit of wrangling 
with a service called Satoshi Stream Bot. It's on Telegram. And I know I'm getting down a rabbit hole here, but <laughs> it's Satoshi Stream Support. Satoshi's Stream, one word, support. If you're on Telegram, you can subscribe and see all the activity that's happening there. And some of your favorite podcasters are in there, like Adam, like James Cridland, geeking out on this new technology. If you're interested in testing it out and you want to use a app like Fountain or a similar one, head to newpodcastapps.com. So as I said, I was pulling my stats for the Boostergrams and Satoshis. And full disclosure here, I've received 6,811 Satoshis, in case you're wondering what that translates to. It says here, I'm looking at the stats here. So Satoshi Streams provides the front end to allow you to set this up very, very easily. And they take, I believe it's about 5% off of it. So if I was to withdraw it, I'd withdraw 6,276 Satoshis. And with the current conversion, <laughs> that's three a little over $3, um, which may not sound like a lot, but this is super, super, super early days, what most people would call bleeding edge. But I love the fact that the show is already set up for that. And uh, grateful to have uh, Dave Jones from the podcast help me out in Telegram. I was trying to see if everything was working okay. So he actually sent out one of these uh, boostergrams. And it's funny because I can read it out. I have a spreadsheet here. And it says, uh, hey, Harry, <laughs> getting this boost. I'm streaming to you right now, Dave J. So he was able to send the note through the app that he was using. And it looks like, I don't know if I can see that here. No, it looks like uh, you might have been using CurioCaster. But uh, it's just so fun. And as these pick up, and as more and more people come online, I love having the infrastructure in place already. So if you want to learn more, I suggest you jump into that Telegram channel. Uh, they're very helpful. Lots of folks in there trying new things. And at some point, we'll add some uh, effects and some other bonuses for folks. If you want your show shouted out, go ahead and send me a boostogram via one of the apps on newpodcastapps.com. And I'll keep an eye on the stats. And if it comes through and you've got a message there, I'm going to be more than happy to read that out because I love geeking out on this stuff. Okay, enough of the tech talk. Let's get into this conversation with uh, Eric. Eric Johnson, host of Follow Friday and founder of Lightning Pod. Thank you for joining me on Podcast Junkies. So happy to be here. Thanks, Harry. So Eric, we connected, I think it was through the my experiment with any podcast recommendations, right? Yeah, which is such a great idea. I love it. <laughs> So for the benefit of listener, I was uh, dabbling in these no-code tools. I had been accepted and, and gone through OnDeck's no-code cohort, their first one, and learned enough to be dangerous <laughs> with these tools. And I was working. So I've been I've always been familiarizing with myself and, and familiar with tools like uh, Airtable. And so I learned Webflow, Notion, and I don't know how much of these you follow or if you follow anything in that space, but it's been amazing to see how much you can do and how powerful they are. Um, I come from a reporting background at, at E-Trade. I used to manage a reporting team. So I was always in Excel, always trying to figure out formulas and <laughs> pivot tables and tinkering there. So it's for tinkerers, it's really exciting. And, and one of the mantras in no code is to ship it and perfect is the enemy of done. So <laughs> I remember, and you've probably seen this, so that's why I was no surprise. But on Twitter, it's, does anyone have any podcast recommendations? Does anyone have any podcast recommendations? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it must have just been, um, I must have been just a little loopy or the timing was right. I'm like, can I just whip something up and have it be like 
literally the 1.0 version. And then I use, so I use Notion, Airtable, and uh, long story short, Gumroad. And funny enough, and you were kind enough to contribute to uh, <laughs> the experiment. But yeah, just for $19, you could have your, your show shown for the week. So that's been exciting and fun to see. And we're, we're now trying to figure out if there's, there's it has some legs in there. And just to, fin- to wrap up on that side note, someone today tweeted, it's August 25th, 2021, just to timestamp this, but someone today tweeted, I was looking, I Googled any podcast recommendations and I came across this site, any podcast recommendations. I, I can't believe someone actually did this. Damn you, but good on you for doing it and taking imperfect action. Exactly. Right? Like you said, perfect is the enemy of, of good or perfect is the enemy of done. It's a great expression. Yeah, you just, you had the idea and you did it. And, uh, you know, I'm so glad that it exists now. I actually, when I started my consulting business, Lightning Pod, there was a time when I had a column and tweet deck for podcast recommendations, just in case people were looking, maybe I could be like a helpful figure in the industry, similar to what you're doing. And, you know, what you see, if you actually search for podcast recommendations is a lot of people, I think, have bots, or maybe they're just on Twitter all day. I don't know. But (laughs) when people tweet for podcast recommendations, they sometimes get deluged with all these folks just sending like, listen to my show, even if it's completely like, not the genre they're asking for. Like you might see someone saying like, oh, any history podcast recommendations, but then some bot that's just looking for the words podcast recommendations is just say, here, listen to this comedy show. And it's like, that's not the assignment, dude. (laughs) I spoke to... um... His name is Will Conway, and he's got a show called Baggage Claim. And we connected through a chat on Clubhouse. So the connections are really weird when you start to think about how you actually meet people for the first time. Had him on the show. What he did that I thought was interesting was he would look at those and he would shoot a video. So if you posted that, does anyone have any podcast recommendations? He would shoot a video, say, hey, Eric, here's a little excerpt from my show because he creates like these vignettes, like these one minute, 30 second vignettes of his, of a specific episode. That's so smart. So he would show the, create the video vignette and then share that so that people could actually like see a video, like an animated, an animation or hear it and do a little bit, bit of work or, you know, help them along the way. Cause as you just rightly pointed out, podcasters like haven't se- have never seen a platform or a group or a Twitter feed where they don't think that their show is the best way <laughs> or, or the best thing to promote. Like I even had a turn off. I have a podcast group myself for podcast junkies, but I turned off the ability for people to post because inevitably like just people just start spamming and, and they're not, they don't think in a considerate way about how to share their, their show with, with other folks. Yeah, I think the only place it really works is like on Reddit where Reddit has such a culture of moderators who if you give them a set of rules and, People know we like these are rules that will be enforced. I think Reddit has done a good job of like making that clear that it, whatever community you join, you got to play by their rules. I guess Facebook groups do some of that now too, although I'm not to some extent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I've d- dove at certain points into you know Facebook groups and podcasting groups on Facebook and on Reddit and stuff, and some of them are just a wild west of just promotional nonsense. <laughs> Reddit does a really good job because I've noticed I did a second show. I have a second show in, in the vertical farming niche and I, I tried to follow the rules and say, Hey, I'm, I'm about to start a show. What guests do you think would make sense? But the minute I started promoting episodes, it, it didn't last that long and like they got taken down and it feels like you need to like know Reddit to post in Reddit. And I think they give there's some sort of weight into how long you've been in Reddit and how long you've been posting on Reddit. So it's, it's a, it's interesting, a bit of a black box for me, but to your point, if you're in, you're in. Yeah. <laughs> and if you're not, you'll just get your stuff blocked. Right. 
And so you have a, a journalism degree, right? And are you studying journalism? When did podcasts come on your radar? So I first started basically pre-podcast. I started working in commercial radio in the news department of WBRU in Providence. And I was working in the news department there doing covering local news and politics and things like that. Uh, so this was starting in 2007. Okay. And maybe a year or two into it, I got turned on to this idea of podcasting of like, oh, wow, well, it's radio, but you can choose when you listen to and choose exactly what you listen to. I started listening to some of the the big shows like This American Life and Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me was an early one. Then Radiolab came later. I got obsessed with Radiolab for several years. And we did a little bit of podcasting at WBRU. Not very successfully, but we tried it. You know, it, it was something we were trying to adapt the stories that we were making for broadcast radio to a podcast feed. And then, you know, I was thinking that working in radio would just be sort of a fun thing I did in college. I wasn't certain that it was something that would, you know, be my career or affect my career. So after college, I went to journalism grad school, as you mentioned, got my MA in communications from Stanford, and I went to go work for All Things D, the uh, technology blog, which was the forerunner to Recode, which is now owned by Vox. Which was came out of uh, Wall Street Journal, right? That's right. All Things D was sort of a side, it was like a side website. It was owned by, by Dow Jones. It was affiliated with the journal, but separate staff completely. So, so yeah, working at All Things D, I was working with Kara Swisher and Walt Mossberg and just this incredible team of, of A-listers. All, basically, everyone who was a reporter for All Things D, you can find them now. They're off at New York Times and Axios and all sorts of amazing places. But, but yeah, so then I was at All Things D, which then became Recode in 2014. I was a reporter for a time covering the video game industry and then the virtual reality industry, such as it was at the time. <laughs> and uh, But then late 2015, basically the, the VR beat honestly was not really going anywhere, and Kara needed a podcast producer. The person who had been producing the first couple months of her podcast wanted to move on to a different thing. I had experience in radio and podcasting. And so the stars aligned, and it was just like, hey, do you want to move over from being a reporter to do this instead? And it was, you know, probably the best decision I've ever made in my career, <laughs> saying yes to that. I really got to get back in touch with this thing that I loved, working in audio, and wound up producing Recode Decode with Kara Swisher from end of 2015 until the show ended its run in the series finale in summer 2020. So lots of experience along the way, lots of opportunities to work with... Um real pioneers in the space. I mean, just to, to, I know I used to have an, a subscription to the Wall Street Journal because I worked at the JP Morgan Chase in a previous life. I worked at E-Trade. So it was just almost like required reading. <laughs> but I was drawn to the all things digital. I think it was still a section in the print and or the digital version of it, but I remember reading it on a regular basis. It sort of harkens back to the, if you remember the science page from the New York Times, on Tuesdays, I think it was, I think I remember it was, they would talk about science topics. So it, it was fun because I love, to my girlfriend's chagrin, all things tech and new tool, shiny t tech tools. <laughs> so I'm always trying out new tools and all things digital is pretty interesting. And I'm, I'm, I don't know if you follow the, the future. What's the, the one now that the Wall Street Journal does? I don't know. I'm sorry. It's the future, future trends or something along those lines. So something similar. So what was it like working with the likes of uh, Kara and Walt on all things digital? Well, it was funny because, so, you know, they are, in a way, celebrity journalists, right? As far as the media goes, celebrities out there. And so 
this was my first job out of grad school and my parents were just like, okay, well, you gotta show up. You gotta, you know, wear a nice button down shirt. You gotta get all dressed up. And I show up for when I, I started as an intern, I show up for my first staff meeting in San Francisco as an intern in my, you know, perfectly overstarched, you know, white button down shirt. And Kara just strolls in and just like an Angry Birds t-shirt and sunglasses. And just, it, it, so right away, it was a lot more casual and a lot less ego than I was expecting, which held true through all the years I've known her. I mean, she certainly is a big presence. So if you if you follow her on Twitter or follow her writing or her podcast's way, you know, or pivot for that matter, you know that she's a big personality and she, she's a big talker. But I really loved working with her and with the rest of the team. I really found it to be just an incredible group of people who, you know, I think it's I think it's very easy in the media to get swept up in the amount of attention that's coming your way. If you're writing, let's say, a big article, you've got a big scoop, you've got a hit podcast, stuff like that. It's very easy to just get carried away by just all the attention and all the praise that's coming your way. But I really found all the people I worked with at All Things D and Rico and Vox, you know, I, I really had a good experience with, with all of them and really was impressed by how they handled themselves professionally and just as, as people. It was a wonderful group to work with. How did you grow as a journalist? <laughs> so from working with that team? Yeah, yeah. I would say the main thing for me was, so this was the tail end of the, wow, internet is amazing era yeah. <laughs> of journalism. This was post-Arab Spring, like before, I guess while I was in All Things D intern, but while I was in grad school, I wrote a front page article for the San Francisco Chronicle about Reddit GIFs, the secret Santa exchange on Reddit. And it was very, you know, it's typical of a lot of articles for the time. It's just very, look at this cool thing people are doing. Everything is great. There's no problems here, you know? <laughs> and I think that was, there have been technical, there have been critics of, you know, internet companies since the very beginning of the internet. But I think the default, the norm in the media at the time was very uncritical, unquestioning. And working with the the folks at All Things D and Recode, it really pushed me to think about the folks I cover in a more critical way and to think about the role of a journalist in, you know, holding people, powerful people's feet to the fire. That's something that certainly over the, the succeeding years, you know, as we learned more about the bad stuff that Google has done, that Facebook has done, now Apple has done. I mean, basically, like, there's, you know, all these companies are more powerful than almost every country on earth, right? And so it's important that we have a very critical tech press that is really looking carefully and scrutinizing everything they do and how it affects literally billions of people. And that's something that, honestly, I was just a, a fan of technology, kind of similar to what, what you're talking about. I was a fan of new gadgets and just like the idea and the, the promise, the purely positive side of technology before I went to work with this team. And I'm so glad that I saw firsthand how professionals walk that line of understanding that these are humans making decisions. Humans are flawed and make mistakes, but at the same time, they need to be shown, they need to be reminded of the power they have and, and to use it responsibly. What's your take on this, what's happening in, in journalism nowadays as folks are, are leaving big papers and like the New York Times and then starting their own sub stacks and, and creating their own followings and, and some are having success and some not. So it must be interesting having studied and, and grown up in this, this space and seen it mature over the years. I'm, I'm interested to see what your take on that is. Yeah, I mean, I think 
what we've heard a lot about is a lot of the people who were already big names who already had a following either from traditional media or just from building it themselves through podcasting, through newsletters, through Twitter, stuff like that. I think for most journalists, it's not a tenable path to completely strike out on your own. I think I think there is still a lot of benefit of, you know, working in a larger organization, especially when you think about stuff like local journalism, right? And it's really sad what's happening to local press all across the United States is all of these, you know, n- newspapers that just like they, they can't, you know, they can't really pay the bills and they're getting preyed on by private equity firms and they are offering buyouts to experienced reporters who are just like, yeah, you know, this is better than getting paid a pittance every year. You know, I think we hear about the exceptions and not the rule. And so I think it's, Great that it is working for some people, but I have concerns that we think it's going to work for everyone because it's not. I think, you know, we hear about folks who, no matter where they went, they would have a following. They would have a, an army of people following them. And for a lot of folks, it's that's just not the case. It's a lot of folks, they are just on the ground doing important, you know, civic reporting and not getting their name. Not, they're not on TV. They're not becoming celebrities. They're not be going viral on Twitter. They're just going out to, you know, city council meetings or they're covering Congress or they're, you know, doing whatever it is in a more anonymous way. And those people are a very important part of the journalism ecosystem. And so... You know, I'm always kind of like tempering my excitement about like, oh, it's great to see people striking out because, I, you know, emotionally, I'm very happy for those people. I want them to succeed. I want all of them to succeed. But I'm always tempering that excitement with just like, but this is not the entirety of what the media is. I remember watching an episode of uh, Hassan Minaj's Patriot Act. If you've ever seen that show on HBO, it's really good. Yeah, yeah. There was a great episode I watched of that. That was on Netflix, right? Yeah, and it was about the local news and how it's being decimated. And it was it was really eye-opening because it's sad because the papers that are covering stories that need to be covered, and I think he was using Florida as an example, they're being bought up by the millionaires who don't want their private lives uh, investigated. <laughs> so right, exactly. they buy out the newspapers. And so it's really interesting. I just wonder if there'll be a groundswell of support or something maybe with like this world of like um, blockchain and, and decentralized news, or maybe there's a way to bring that back in a way that can be locally supported, crowdfunded or something like that. Um, have you heard of any things happening to try to bring some of that local news back? Yeah, I mean, well, I honestly barely understand the blockchain. I have an high school understanding of it, but I think there was Manush Lamarodi who is was at WNYC. I'm not sure. She hosts uh, Note to Self. She and her producing partner, I think they had a big blockchain news experiment a couple years ago. Okay. I remember that she came on uh, Peter Kafka's podcast, Recook Media, which I also produced for a time. And, you know, on the one hand, I'm supportive of and interested in anything that any experiments people will undertake that will help to finance the type of journalism that I'm talking about. There's also, you know, I, I'm also curious about, I think it's called CityPod or something like that. It's a, it's a startup that's launching local podcasts. They're just purely focused on local news. And there's, I've subscribed to, I'm in San Francisco, I subscribe to email newsletters about San Francisco politics and news. So there's people who are trying different stuff. And I'm supportive, obviously, of anything that, you know, anything that works. You got to throw spaghetti at the wall, see what sticks. But, you know, I'm a little bit cautious about 
hitching it to a brand new technology or something that's, that's kind of unproven, like like blockchain, where we don't fully understand, you know, like it's not maybe not accessible to everyone and we don't fully understand what the ramifications of it are yet. I guess I maybe maybe this is old fashioned to me, but I, I'm more comfortable with the idea of like sure, sure. attaching it yeah. to a podcast or to a newsletter versus a, a new startup built around an entirely new technology. Yeah. And I think to your point, maybe it is podcasting. Maybe it is. There are a lot of um, localized shows. I've got a, a previous guest. His name is Mark Bologna. He does um, a show just about on New Orleans, Bourbon Street, <laughs> and it's all news around there. But he's created a whole he's got now he's got a whole Facebook group of people who are creating localized hyper niche podcasts about a specific region. And, you know, there's, there's people doing that on a regular basis. So there is some promise and some hope. So that's going to be fun to watch how that proceeds. Absolutely. I'm wondering as when you grew up, and if it's still the case now, like if you told your parents that you landed a job at the Wall Street Journal or New York Times, you know, coming out of journalism school, I'm, I'm sure that's like the the holy grail, <laughs> right, in terms of like looking for a job. Did you have that feeling when you landed the job at, at All Things Digital? And, and do you think that's still the case now? Yeah, I mean, maybe this is, uh, you know, something I should discuss with a therapist. But I think I was constantly in the state at All Things D and then at Recode. I was constantly in the assumption like, well, this could all go away tomorrow. You know, at some point, you know, this could all snap back, which, you know, was not an entirely bad thing. It made me work hard and made me try new things. You know, I certainly I was thrilled when I got hired at, at All Things D, as were my folks. And, you know, I then also excited when I was a part of the founding team of Recode and excited when we joined Vox. All of that, you know, being part of those big organizations, all of that was great. But I will say that the most exciting thing in my career to date has been last year striking out on my own, even though it doesn't come with the prestige of, you know, of being attached to one of these big media organizations, you know, it is something that really felt right. It felt like the, the right thing to do at the, the right time. And uh, to my earlier point, what I was saying is like, my goal in striking out is not to become a celebrity. I'm not trying to be one of these people who's going off and then, you know, becoming a, a gigantic presence on Substack or whatever. What I'm trying to do is to leverage my expertise from podcasting to help other people in the industry help them make their shows and so far it's been going really well and I, i'm just so like you know i think this is the right place for me now and it's the thing that's made me it's made me really happy to be doing this uh, over the past almost a year now yeah we'll definitely get into that uh story as well do you have a particular story that it's one of the ones you're most proud of as a journalist well I'm proud of this, and I also have regrets, which is that I was ahead of the curve when I was a video game industry reporter. I was ahead of the curve on the Gamergate saga, basically the fact that there was a lot of a lot of toxic people in the video game world, both in the, the labor force, but also especially among the game players, folks who were not welcoming of diverse voices, including those of women, people of color, queer voices, things like that. And so a couple months before it really kicked off in 2014, you know, I wrote this this uh, column for Recode just angrily just talking about the sexist way that people were talking about a video game that was coming out. And, you know, in the months that followed, the harassment against some of these marginalized voices in gaming got really intense. I wrote about it a lot. I wrote about it critically. I repeatedly and specifically called out, you know, the fact that there was all these powerful video game companies that could have said something 
about it could have said something more forceful to their fans, but chose not to because they need those same fans to be lining up on release day to buy a brand new game, right? They're they kind of compromised in that way where they need that same passion that's being harnessed to harass people. They need that passion to get people to pre-order games and to you know pay full, full price for stuff. And so they were cowards about that. And I think I'm very proud of the fact that I called them out as such and that I was repeatedly, you know, planting that stake in the ground. I wasn't looking the other way as some publications were doing. But at the same time, I think I didn't go far enough. I think, you know, in hindsight, obviously it's not like one journalist could have turned the tide of this massive harassment campaign. This is where the internet was turning. It's not as though any of these companies could have single-handedly, you know, stopped this wave. But I do think they could have done more, and I think I could have done more to push them into voicing voicing that, into standing up for the rights of all people to play games, all people to make games. I think what I should have done in hindsight is I should have, you know, uh, if someone came to me with a announcement, a press release of something that was coming out or some big new initiative, I should have said, great, I'd be happy to cover this after you actually make a public statement about harassment and why why it's bad. After you do, basically, I should have held coverage hostage, you know, because I think it is important for folks who have power in whatever industry it is to, you know, speak up for those who don't have voice, who don't have power. And I wish I had pushed harder to get that to happen. As it stood, I wrote a lot of articles that got a lot of pickup where I was correctly calling out folks who were being cowards, but I didn't make them not cowards. They eventually, eventually, you know, the news moved on and they didn't actually have to face many repercussions for the inaction they were showing for, for their lack of, of behavior, of good behavior. Yeah, I wonder if the companies have been through this cycle enough times to know that this too shall pass. And as bad as some of these cycles get and some, as, you know, holding their feet to the fire for pick your topic of the of the month, of the week, of the year. and And I think they in some way know that if they just sort of lay low and, and do the minimum required and, and change their change their mission, change their values and talk about that publicly. And then it's the new cycle, right? People are, what's the next thing that's going to get people interested? What's the next thing that people are going to be, you know, making noise about? And, and I, I think if a company has been around long enough, they're like, Oh, we just got to get through this. And then people eventually, which is sad to say that, you know, that, Sometimes the changes aren't made that need to be made, but I think voices like yours are important to at least raise the flag and then let people know that this is something that's happening. You know, I I imagine that's the goal of, of journalism to like shine a light on things that otherwise might not have gotten notice because of your vantage point. And I'm in, and I'm thinking about just like you know. When I was in journalism school, they were t- teaching us about the rules of what makes something newsworthy, right? And one of the conditions or one of the components uh, that makes something newsworthy is the ability of the audience to act on the information that you're sharing. And so, you know, you think about how this then trickles down to consumers. It's not just about the interplay between the media and the industry. It's also about, okay, the people who are, you know, reading or listening to whatever the media is saying, you know, what are they able to do with that information? And so, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about like, you know, even if I had, even if the news had moved on, you know, I could have had a little blurb at the top of every article saying, you know, the companies listed in this article have refused to, you know, uh, comment on this. They've instead pointed to this, you know, PR firm that has this generic statement, you know, 
take that as you will. Basically, you know, take that under consideration before you patronize them. I think that's something that, you know, that's what good critical journalism is, is really all about, is giving people the facts and letting them make decisions. It's not necessarily, you know, it's not necessarily, it's not just about, you know, the media and the industry. It's also about all the, the people involved who are consuming what's being made. Who are some journalists in the space that you admire? Oh, Kara Swisher, obviously. That's the easy yeah. answer, but no. <laughs> uh, let's see here. Journalists specifically in in technology? or Yeah, whatever comes to mind, yeah. Yeah. Well, I really am a big fan of Ed Young at The Atlantic. He, had, he just won a Pulitzer Prize, and right, rightfully so. He was one of the journalists who was my guiding light or saving grace, whatever you want to call it, during COVID. I mean, it's still ongoing. But, you know, as someone who's demystifying the, the science and, and what's going on, what's the good guidance, what's happening, that's been a, someone who I, I really have loved reading his work. And I mentioned Kara Swisher for the, for the reasons I mentioned earlier. I, th- I think she does the best job of just really, you know, even with people she likes, she holds the feet to the fire. She's critical. You know, she knows how to walk that line really well. And let me think of someone else. I guess with a lot of the folks I follow, I'm thinking of the folks I follow on Twitter because that's like, you know, how my entry point to a lot of news I get. A lot of them are just sort of doing the day in, day out of just like following a beat. So my former coworker, Teddy Schleifer, who just started a new newsletter at Puck, is called The Stratosphere. He covers the tech philanthropy beat so it's basically all these millionaires and billionaires these really you know uh, powerful people in our society how are they using their money what politicians are they giving money to what what are they what are they talking about how are they thinking all of that and so a lot of his his newsletters that he's been writing a lot of them are you know just incremental updates on like here's the latest initiative by this group here's what they're trying to do here's the goals they're trying to achieve here's who's working together and I just really admire the hell out of that, of, of a journalist like Teddy. I mean, there, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of people like him. I'm just picking, picking on him because, you know, I know him personally. I really admire beat reporters like that who have a specific niche and are just, you know, hitting the pavement every day, just going out and finding out what's the latest in this world, you know. That's, and like I said, a similar thing on, on the local journalism front, Heather Knight at the San Francisco Chronicle. She's one of the, the best reporters they've got and one of the best writers they have. And people like her, you know, going out there and focusing on, you know, the, the right local issues. We recently had a big local dust up here where there was a, an entrepreneur who was trying to open a matcha shop, like a Japanese ice cream shop. And a rival ice cream parlor in the same neighborhood used these shadowy local political techniques to basically block him from building it. So he wasted $250,000 trying to work through the city's system only to be blocked by this, you know, potential competitor, which seems completely, you know, wrong. But what uh, folks like Heather correctly pointed out was that, yes, it's bad that the, the existing shop used all these shady techniques, but that, you know, she focused the attention on, like, well, why is the system set up like this in the first place? Why is this allowed in the San Francisco city politics? Why is it possible for an established, successful business to thwart a potential co- uh, competitor, you know, right out of the gate? And so that's the sort of thing where re- journalists like that who are on a beat, who are able to reframe and refocus our attention. So it's not just about 
you know, I think there was a lot of internet outrage correctly pointed for a time at the existing ice cream shop in that example. But a good journalist, a good beat journalist, will step back, look at the larger picture, and point to us at, you know, what's the root cause of this problem, not just who's the villain of the week. Yeah, to talk about both sides so that people can make an informed decision. Yeah, thanks for sharing that those that list. Um, it'll give people some some resources to look up and other people to follow, hopefully. Um, so when you started at Recode, how long did you think about the offer when uh, Kara had mentioned that the position was open? Oh, you mean the, the podcast producer thing? Yeah. Oh, right away, right away. Because <laughs> no, the thing was, like, I, I knew that I loved working in audio, right, from my time in the radio station. And then I had, it for fun, on the side, I had started a, a podcast with my college friend, a pop culture show called Giant Geek versus Mega Noob. So I was already doing a little bit of podcasting for fun on the side. I knew that I was enjoying that. So the idea of, you know, oh, getting paid to do it, well, that sounds nice. <laughs> How much did you realize you didn't know about podcasting or did you learn as you started working? Oh, so much. With, with, with <laughs> yeah, gigantic amount. No, I mean, that's the thing is like, yeah. you know, with, with the consulting business, I started with Lightning Pod. You know, there's a lot of folks out there who are spreading the this misinformation that podcasting is easy, that it's just about, you know, turn on some microphones and uploading the MP3 to the web. And obviously, it's not that at all. There's so much more involved. And so really, I had to learn on the job. Fortunately, I had other folks on the team at Vox who were, who were there who were able to, to help me, you know, when I was getting started, getting my feet wet. But it was, yeah, I had to do a lot of learning on the job, a lot of trial and error to figure out, like, what's the right workflow for this show and what is the right tone and what what do we need to do for a live taping and what do we need to do to get the you know guests booked and get the releases signed and get the episode out there all the different moving pieces that go into making a podcast there was just you know there's just a, a a huge amount of stuff that happens behind the scenes of a successful podcast that by design audience is not really privy to the listeners don't really think about or care about but it was it was hard work and i'm really glad that i i got kind of got thrown into the deep end and, and had to had to learn that it was a really valuable experience for me to your point a lot of people don't understand how much uh work goes into uh, an episode like that so just and i, I realize not all episodes are, are made equally but what does the production cycle look like like how much time are we talking about from maybe just concept or i have a guest in mind and then follow that through to all the moving parts that need to happen to, to the show then being published, like just at, at a high level, I think it might be helpful for... For Recode Decode or for something else? Yeah, for, for Recode, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, Recode Decode was a, um, a special case because even as the producer, I rarely, only rarely did interview prep, like explicit interview prep with Kara. She's just such an experienced interviewer, such an experienced journalist, that she was able to just kind of, you know, walk in and she knew what she wanted to ask. She had an innate sense of the structure of the rhythm of an interview. So that part of it was more hands-off. But yeah, the process from start to finish would be, okay, we want to talk to this person, reach out to this person, get a date on the calendar, get all the surrounding information, their picture, their bio, their whatever, get them to sign our appearance release, you know, get them in studio, because for at the time, we were only doing in-person tapings. There was a long stretch there where we were not doing the Squadcast stuff where we were, you know, remote at all. Most of the show, we were not remote. So get them in studio or get, get Kara to the city where they are and then rent a studio in that city, all of that. So that's all the logistics before the taping. 
the actual taping, if it was one in San Francisco that I was running, it would be setting up the equipment and testing everything, getting everything as good as we could. That was certainly was a learning process for me. Some of the early episodes, I cringe at how bad the audio is, but I got better. <laughs> and if, Or if it was an outside studio or a live venue, then just working with the people there to get everything set up for the taping, making sure that everything got recorded. It's not as simple as just hitting a button. You also need to you'd be keeping an eye on the levels and all of that, making sure that Everything is coming in clearly. There's no interruptions. There's no distracting sounds. The most common thing we had... Every podcaster's uh, worst nightmare to not get the, the, the audio recorded. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, yeah some people have, have nightmares about like waking up and it's like they're going to school and they, it's a the test they haven't studied for. I think that's for us. That's our equivalent. It's just like, you know, it's published day and, oh, no, the audio didn't. But no, the, yeah, so, you know, monitoring the audio during the recording making sure that everything sounds okay. We sometimes would have guests who would have, this is more of an issue later on when we switched to Squadcast during COVID, but like if someone has like loud jewelry or something, you know, sometimes I would hear like, what is that clacking noise? What is making that noise on the table? And it would be like a, a loud bracelet or something. But then, so that's just the production phase. And then post-production, we worked with an amazing, uh, a couple of amazing editors over the course of the show. First was Chris Basil at Cadence 13, and then Joel Robbie, who's an independent podcast editor. So that was one aspect. Another aspect of the production that I didn't have to be completely hands-on, but I would do like a, a rough, just a very quick assembly cut for those guys, send it off to them. They would start working on the proper audio edit and the levels and mixing, mastering, all of that. Meanwhile, what I would be doing is I would be getting the raw audio transcribed. I would be working with a copy editor at Vox, as well as the social media team, the marketing team, things like that, teeing up the episode, getting it ready. I'd be writing the titles and the descriptions and all of that. And then for a time, I was also writing, for many years, I was writing full articles, sometimes multiple articles, about each podcast episode. So we would have guests on the show who'd be breaking news. They would be announcing new projects, new initiatives. They'd be announcing something new that they're working on. In late 2018, I uh, got to meet Elon Musk because we went down to Tesla's headquarters. Kara interviewed Elon for like an hour and a half. And yeah, just tons and tons of just, you know, news stories coming out of that. You know, and so we would have people like that, of that caliber on the show who are of great public interest, who would break news on the show. So I'd be working, you know, closely with the editorial and the marketing teams and all of that to make sure that as soon as this news is out there, as soon as we release the audio, we want to have the scoop on this story. We we, we were the ones in the rooms. So we want to make sure that we have the story out there. So that was a big chunk of the behind the scenes work that I was doing on the Recode shows was just you know, making sure that this exclusive audio that we temporarily have control over lets us control this, you know, let's own this story completely start to finish. And then once the show is out there, you know, still working with social media and marketing teams, helping to promote the show, figuring out like what's the best way to, to talk about it out in public, tweeting about it, posting about it on various social platforms, all of that. And then it's just like the constant cycle because we did 539 episodes of Recode Decode. And so, and by the end of it, we were doing three episodes per week. So all of that that I described, there's multiple cycles of that always happening simultaneously. So it was a juggling act where one show would just be in the booking phase, but we're just trying to nail down a date to get Kara to talk with the guest. And another one, I'm in the middle of writing two articles about some, you know, crazy thing the person said on the show. And so it, it took a lot of not multitasking, but just like switching. I had to be, I had to be able to switch in my head from what's the important thing now, what's the important thing an hour from now, um, and that was that was again just another really important 
skill that getting thrown in the deep end taught me. It's amazing when you lay it out like that and something to your point that new podcasters or folks coming into the space don't realize like all the things you need to do to ensure a quality show. And it, and, and it's not just the prep and it's not just the production and the actual recording, but it is thought given to the production, how the episode is going to be released, how it's going to be shared. And especially when it's content that you're excited to share and, and how do you, how you break it up and repurpose it. Were there any tools that you were using as you for managing all these moving parts that were helpful for you? <laughs> yeah, I was I was guilty of sometimes doing that thing where, you know, you're constantly trying new tools because you think they're going to make you more productive. <laughs> the By the end, the most important tools for us, Google Drive was number one, just for managing files from everywhere. I used, I think it was Asana, maybe? I was using Trello for a little bit. I sp- think I switched to Asana by the end. I think that was that was my main one. Uh, just for managing all the different, you know, what state is each of these, is each of these episodes in, and then for me, honestly, um, one of the big ones was Evernote. Uh, just like a just like a good note taking application, just so I can keep track of just you know what was said in this interview and what's happening over here, what's the status of this, and then obviously just the whatever calendar app I had on my on my computer and on my phone because you know with that sort of publishing schedule with three episodes a week of that show you know you really have to know for sure exactly how much time you know you have for everything yeah very cool thank you for sharing that that's uh i'd love to geek out on that sort of production stuff as uh, for the stuff we do as well so talk to me about the origins of follow friday yeah, so Follow Friday is the first show from Lightning Pod, which is my independent podcasting company. And so Lightning Pod predates it by a couple months. I launched the company December 2020. Follow Friday came out end of January 2021. First episode came out then. And the idea is, A, I want to make a successful show, something that I can be really proud of. But B, it's also important for me to be out in the trenches making a show, committing to a schedule, trying new things, experimenting, learning on the, you know, on the job so that I can then go back and use what I learned from making Follow Friday to help my consulting clients. So the premise of Follow Friday is a weekly interview show about who you should follow online. And this is something that it's a weekly interview show about who you should follow online, which is something that I have always been interested in. It's something where I certainly have thousands and thousands of people that I follow across Twitter and YouTube, etc. And it's fascinating to me when I see someone sharing something that they are clearly super passionate about, and I have no idea it exists, right? We all have our own internet bubbles and I think there's something incredibly interesting about hearing a person talk about the thing that they are passionate about, that they are enthusiastic about. And I was surprised to see that I, I, I didn't see any shows that were like this out there where people were, you know, really being asked to to have that conversation, to, to open up their, their followers list or the subscription list or what have you and, and really unpack, you know what they were really into. And so that was something where it seemed to me, I knew that I wanted this show to be, as I mentioned, sort of a laboratory where I could learn stuff that could be applicable to the consulting business. And so for that reason, I was like, okay, well, I don't want to spend all of my time. I don't want this to be a 40-hour-a-week podcast, right? Even though those are great, I'm sure I could have fun with one. I wanted it to be... Can't be recode V2. Right, it couldn't be three episodes a week, certainly. So I thought, okay, a weekly interview show seems like the most basic format for for a podcast 
I know I can manage one episode a week of a weekly interview show and still have time for all my clients. And so, yeah, I knew that I started with that. I knew that I was interested in internet culture. I knew that I was interested in talking to people about things that they are passionate about. And I think the real tipping point was just a specific instance of there's a YouTuber I, I like uh, called Mikey Newman. He runs a channel called Film Joy on YouTube. And he on Twitter shared out a link to a video from another YouTube channel called Folding Ideas, which does the, they, the both these channels do, you know, long ish, like kind of intense, sometimes geeky essays about film and culture and video games and things like that. And I had the, the realization that I might have found this other channel, Folding Ideas. I might have found it on my own or through the YouTube algorithm or whatever. But the fact that specifically it was coming from Mikey, someone who I already knew and whose taste I trusted, that that made me so much more interested in checking it out. And so then I started thinking about all the creative people online and otherwise who are, you know, they can offer a kind of endorsement to the creators that they care most about, sort of going down the chain. They can give a boost to some of the people they love the most, the people who have inspired them, who make them laugh, or who they're jealous of, or whatever. And so then that was kind of the impetus of it, as I wrote out a list of categories for each of my guests of, okay, give me the name of someone who inspires you. Give me the name of someone you have a non-romantic crush on. Give me the name of as someone you follow who you have a love-hate relationship with. All of that. And so that was Follow Friday. That was that, The format just kind of fell into place after just after seeing that one tweet from Mikey. Okay. was me kind of writing down, jotting down, you know, this could work as a format for a show. And it, and it does. I'm really happy with how it turned out because it naturally lends itself into these sort of bite-sized segments. There's four per episode, four different follow recommendations, and then a fifth one, which is a bonus follow, which is exclusive to Patreon, to the Patreon page for the show. And uh, and yeah, I just like, I have loved making this show. It's turned out even better than I thought it might be, just because, as I mentioned, we are all in our own internet bubbles. We are all caring about completely different stuff. And so even people who I've had on the show who I think of as being in a similar bubble to mine, who I think of as being in my wheelhouse, like journalists and tech people and things like that, video game people, they have come up with names and and with follow recommendations that I have never heard of, but am incredibly delighted by. There's this incredibly charming, brilliant, insightful people who I did not know existed. And I've heard from listeners as well that, you know, they are going out and they are, they're following people who are being recommended on the show. So it's just, it's a virtuous cycle of just like sharing the love that you have for all these accounts. So yeah, I'm delighted with how the show's turned out so far. We'll make sure we have links to that so people can subscribe or follow or whatever the proper term is now. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. That's the problem with all these uh, podcast apps changing their verbiage where it used to be you subscribe to a show. Now on Spotify and Apple, you follow the show. So I can't say follow, follow Friday. That, that sounds like nonsense. So what I always say is um, follow Friday podcast dot com or you can listen or f- you can you can follow or subscribe to follow Friday in your favorite podcast app, you know. <laughs> I love the fact that you have a URL specific for the show because it's one of the things we tell our clients as well. Just like make sure you have it easy to remember and easy to spell because sometimes, you know, people like even the word two is a T O T O O, right? The number two. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a, so, yeah, it's, I'm wondering what you've learned producing that show that's been helpful for you as you start to build out Lightning Pod. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it has to do with the more editorial side of things because previously I was behind the scenes on the Recode shows. And so, 
I was aware of, you know, the fact that Kara was an exceptional journalist, but I, I was rarely on mic myself. I was on mic for a couple episodes. And I think the biggest thing has been learning about the rhythm of the interview, learning about the pace of everything, not rushing the guest, not talking over them, even though a lot of the time we're talking about really funny or interesting people, and I'm excited to talk about them. I'm excited. I've always done research before the interview where I've you know looked up their follow recommendations, and I want to talk about, oh, did you see this one video? Oh, that was so funny. That was so great. A lot of what I've learned from making the show has been giving people space to giving the guest space to you know talk about what they they're here for a reason they're here to talk about who they have picked or they're interested in and not stepping on their enthusiasm that's something i've gotten better at over time i think i hope (laughs) so there's that on the editorial side of things and then yeah on the other side of things you know again in contrast to the recode shows where I was part of a larger team, where I was not the main social media person, I was not the main marketing person, anything like that, uh, Follow Friday has forced me, it's a completely solo show, it's one-man operation, that's it. It has forced me to really educate myself about, like, you know, audiograms and about, you know, social media and really, like, what's the best practices. I'm still honestly figuring all of that out. It's it's a constant work in progress. I don't claim to have, you know, all the, all the answers about that. But, you know, for instance, I made a dedicated Twitter account for the show when I launched it because I was figured, like, sure, that's what podcasts do. And it's fine. It has, a, it has like a hundred or 200 followers, whatever. But in hindsight, I'm realizing, hmm, you know, I'm, I'm counseling clients this way. I'm saying if you already have a presence on Twitter in some way, you probably don't need a dedicated Twitter account for your show because what I've learned from, from running that is that, you know, it's a smaller audience than my existing Twitter account. And it's just, it's work to build up a following. It is, yeah. You know, so it's like, unless you really have so much to say on that account that it would ruin the, you know, experience for your existing followers where, wherever you have them, you know, it, you don't necessarily need to have that. So that that's something that, you know, if I were doing it over again, I might not have uh, made that account. That being said, I already have the account. So I'm now constantly thinking about like, how could I use this in a way that's interesting and that's not just repeating the same stuff that i'm saying from my personal account which is by the way at hey hey esj on twitter okay do you worry when you have a show about following folks doing interesting things that your list of people to follow and things to follow just be getting bigger and bigger and you're gonna be running out of time to to keep track of everything sorry can you repeat the question just wondering if you're because of these folks that you're following and then you're looking for new content for the podcast that at some point you know there's only so much time in the day to curate and watch all this stuff. I'm guilty of this myself. I'm trying to figure out, you know, ways to just, you know, wheat from the chaff and just figure out who do I really want to follow? Because at the end of the day, you don't have time to follow everyone. Yeah, there's kind of corollary to this. There's a great essay that Linda Holmes at NPR wrote many years ago. And the title is something like the beautiful, sad fact that you won't get to experience everything. And she was writing about pop culture, writing about books and movies and TV shows and all that, and just coming to a place of serenity and acceptance with the fact that you literally cannot consume all of this, so don't kick yourself for not being able to. And I feel the same way about social media. I think there we live in a time, despite all the problems with big social media companies, I think we live in a time of incredible wealth 
of, you know, democratized knowledge and of this incredibly amazing creative people out there who are just making stuff for free, nonstop, all hours of the day. We have an abundance of great creators online. And I think about their work, their, you know, videos and their jokes and whatever, the same way that Linda thinks about traditional pop culture, which is that you should try to focus on the stuff that makes you happy and try to focus on the stuff that makes you the internet better for you. And whatever you miss, you miss, and you just got to be okay with that. And that's how I think about it. You know, that's how I practice, you know, things with my folks I follow on Twitter or with my podcast subscriptions, you know, I subscribe and my, I, my podcast app, I think I have more than 150 shows that I'm subscribed to. I'm not listening to all those shows. I literally <laughs> cannot, even with that number, I feel you. you know, ne- never mind all the thousands and thousands out there that I probably would enjoy and could also subscribe to should I choose. And so, you know, it can get, you know, to the, the place where you, you maybe you, you feel, guilty about not listening to this show because oh i know that person in real life and oh that sounds really interesting and oh that sounds good too but i think at a certain point you know i understand how it can overwhelm people and can stress people out to have this amount of stuff out there but i think maybe as a result of making the show i don't know i I think i have come to a good place where if i miss something i miss something and i'll be okay you know there'll be more tomorrow (laughs) Really, really good advice, especially for folks that love to uh, digital hoarders, as they say, as I am myself, <laughs> just collecting a lot of content. A couple of uh, questions as we wrap up. What's uh, something you've changed your mind about recently? Something I've changed my mind about recently. Ooh, that's good. Well, okay. In my personal life, I am a huge movie fan, and I'm someone who, for a time, was a bit of a movie purist where movies are better than tv was my my usual refrain and to an extent i'm not completely walking that back to an extent it's true because you know i think the constraints of a movie you know force a good creator to really compress their vision into a, a tight package there's less room to be sloppy or lazy or to not really have the idea fully formed we certainly saw what happens from Game of Thrones when you make a TV show and you don't really have an idea of how it's going to end, right? But that being said, I have, with the recent Marvel TV shows on Disney+, Plus, I've been finding that, you know, most of them I enjoy more than most of the Marvel movies. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm slightly walking back my previous, you know, pig-headedness about TV shows where it's like, okay, fine, with a good creative team, if you have a, you know, a tight idea and you, you are, you know, given more space, more time to explore that idea, I guess that can be better sometimes. Yeah. And for the benefit of the listener, I can't help but notice a couple of the movie references hanging on your wall behind you. Yes. You have Parasite and Alien there as well. Yeah. These are these posters that I got online. It's an illustrator who he he does classic movies in the style of pulp paperback novels so i have alien i have parasite i have do the right thing and i have raiders of the lost ark they are here let me turn my camera so you can see all of them here all great so you can see um, my your listeners can't see this this is a special just for harry tree (laughs) if you want to hold it there i'll just take a quick screenshot and then uh we could figure out a way to share that very cool thank you but yeah it's when i was um because i I, this office that i'm sitting in here this is a office 
designed specifically for the COVID era where I knew I'd be uh, on, on my other computer over there with those posters in the background or sitting here in this corner with some of the posters in the background. I, I thought very specifically about what do I want to have in the Zoom shot behind me. And so I, I measured out the space and I was like, okay, great. I can get four of these posters. Yeah, we're moving to a new apartment soon. And I'm, and I'm thinking about what I'd like the my new space to look like. So always on the hunt for new ideas. Fun fact about um, Alien, I had the honor of actually interviewing the co-creator of Alien. Really? And Yeah, yeah. And um, geez, it's, it's, oh, Ronald Shusett. So Ron, he, I was living in LA at the time and I had a mutual friend who knew him and we went to Venice and it's, if you go to analienandhollywood.com, we recorded like a four-part podcast series and he tells the whole story of the making of alien total recall minority report oh my gosh like working with these actors and i'm sitting in the kitchen like recording him and i remember the first where i was when i watched alien the first one i was in my aunt's house and i was scared shitless because i was like this is a really scary movie but just to be there with like the guy who created like who wrote the chesper scene and unfortunately he's like uh ill now so he's you know not able to talk as as well as he did back then but it was just fun and it's one of the when you think about like places podcasting has taken me that was really like a highlight to be able to, to record that series with him about those early days and and all the the hijinks <laughs> that happened on set with there so that was fun, kind of fun on a related note alien on stage is a new documentary or it's just coming out have you seen it i've seen that yeah i think so and I've heard about it, yeah. It's I, I saw I got lucky enough to see it at a documentary film festival that came through here. Oh wow! And it's so good. It's the, the folks that don't know the premise is it's these like bus drivers, folks who work for work for like a, a small town in England and like the transportation you know service. They put on an annual like Christmas pageant, and so usually it's some light fair like Robin Hood or King Arthur or whatever. And they decided one year, no, we're just going to recreate the movie Alien with, with <laughs> very low budget special effects and non-professional actors and all this stuff. And it's a documentary about them going through that creative process and eventually taking the show to London for a one-night-only performance in the West End, the, the, the Broadway equivalent in London. And it's, oh my God, it's, it's such a good show. It's a, a good documentary, I mean. I'll make sure to look that up as well. Yeah. What's the most misunderstood thing about you? Most misunderstood thing? Well, a lot of people look at me and think that I'm either an engineer or that I would know math or something like that. And I, I'm bad at even basic mental arithmetic. I just, <laughs> I'm just not living up to my appearance as a, as a white bearded guy with glasses from San Francisco. That's good. Well, Eric, I really appreciate you reaching out and uh, supporting my, my crazy project and, and as with all things internet related, and then probably tied into what you're doing on, on the Follow Friday podcast. It's fun to follow the threads of random conversations. And I'm, it's one of the reasons I enjoy having this show because I have a platform. And I'm sure you can relate to that just when you want to have a conversation with someone, and you want and you know, you want to go longer than just a couple of minutes, right? It's nice to have that that vehicle to say, let's learn a little bit more because for me, I'm like honored to see all the people spreading the good word about podcasting and just all the different ways people got into podcasting, which is interesting for me. You have a fantastic story. I'm so happy we got to dive in a little bit and, and got to share it. Me too. And for people to learn about all the, the cool things you're working on. So I appreciate you taking the time. I appreciate you, Harry, for having me on the show. It's so, it's so good talking to you. Uh, it's a lot of fun. And uh, I'm also always glad to meet another uh, alien fan. So, you know, bonus. <laughs> yeah. So where's the best place for folks to connect with what uh, you're working on? 
So you can find Follow Friday at the website I mentioned, followfridaypodcast.com. You can find me on Twitter at HeyHeyESJ. And then you can find my consulting business, my podcast consulting business at lightningpod.fm. And for folks that you're working with at Lightning Pod, do you work with specific types of shows? Is it dramas, narrative, anything that you're, you have as a specific niche? So far, only nonfiction shows, most of them interview shows. Okay. That's my you know particular expertise from both Follow Friday and then the Recode shows. But I'm open to all kinds of clients, kind of happy to help folks you know, uh, with whatever they need help with. My whole thing there is just... I plug into wherever they need help. So if they need a little bit of help with just a little bit of scripting here, if they need audio editing, if they want help thinking about, you know, marketing strategy, things like that, I am very flexible with with my clients, you know, whatever they need help with. Sounds good. We'll make sure we have all those links in the show notes. Thanks again for your time, Eric. Thanks, Harry. Thanks again to Eric for coming on the show. Always appreciated. Full show notes available at podcastjunkies.com. Intro and outro music composed by Cedar and Soil. Don't forget newpodcastapps.com to download one of the cutting-edge podcast apps that allow instant contributions to your favorite podcasters like me. And remember, if you do send a Boostagram, I'll be more than happy to read those out on a future episode. Always grateful to our longtime sponsor, Focusrite, and the awesome lineup here, specifically the Scarlett 2i2 Pro. Can't say enough good things about it. Check out the full lineup at podcastjunkies.com forward slash Focusrite. F-O-C-U-S-R-I-T-E. Podcast production marketing provided by Fullcast. Sign up for a free podcast brainstorm at fullcast.co. Tune in next week for my conversation with Tristan Pellegrino. And if you've made it all the way to the end of this episode, then you're waiting for the retention hashtag. Let's go with follow Friday pod. Tag us at podcast underscore junkies and Eric at hey, hey, E-S-J. That's H-E-Y, H-E-Y, E-S-J on Twitter. Thanks for all you do to support the show. Love you guys. See you next episode.